0: Welcome to Rising. We have another fantastic show for you today. And I'm super excited to say that Bacha Ungar Sargon is back with us again. Bacha, it's wonderful to see you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Thank you. Well, coming up the hills, Hannah Trudeau will join us to discuss progressives searching for a newer, younger representative for their movement. Plus, we'll get into the tweets that have some Twitter users calling Elon Musk a Putin apologist. But first, this morning, NBC News reports that President Biden confirmed he will be running for election in 2024, as expected by some of us, during a private conversation (laughs) with civil rights leaders last month. In an interview with News Nation, TV personality Bill Maher advised uh, Biden to drop uh, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris from the ticket if he wants to win re-election. Let's take a look at that.
2: Obviously... One reason that uh, Biden's age is an issue with a lot of people is, again, they think he's going to die tomorrow, so they are very hyper-concerned about who the vice president is. It takes on more relevance when the president is elderly. So the fact that Kamala Harris is not popular at all is a real detriment for the Democrats. Now, it's not unheard of for presidents to switch their VP choice uh, after one term. It's been done before, and he could choose somebody else.
0: Mm. I take Mars' point, although it hasn't been done in a really long time, to be (laughs) clear, (laughs) like like a long, long, long time, decades and decades and decades and decades ago. So it would be very unprecedented in the modern political um, environment, To ditch the vice president, I agree that, and I've said that you know Kamala Harris is not super popular, um, maybe even a little bit of a liability. But I don't know that she's so much of a liability that the headache of switching her would be worth having, because then you know it'll then it'll turn into a big thing. And why would she go quietly into the night? She's you know she's being set up in her mind to be the next president. So it that's it seems. It seems like that is not a realistic thing to do. She would have to be much, much more of a liability for it to be worth the political fight of kicking her off the ticket. What do you think?
1: Um, So I had two thoughts about this. The first was, um, you know, To the extent that Kamala Harris was a kind of offering to Black women voters who really did deliver the nomination for President Biden, this would be a big slap in the face. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, say what you will about identity politics. I personally think that, you know, many people in the Black community have had enough of it. But to pass over somebody who was, I think, by and large understood as an offering to a very important constituency, uh, I think that that I agree with you, not just a headache, but it's. It makes one very uncomfortable oh, yeah. to consider that. Um, that said, she is deeply unpopular. She's very unpopular with black men. So it, 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 it's in, it's this difficult situation. I, I also do feel that... So we knew she was unpopular because she, she was one of the first to drop out of the primaries. She couldn't get... Pull together a coalition which was shocking given given where she was situated you know I mm-hmm. one can't help but feel that if she had run as a prosecutor right as somebody who was going to make the streets safe as a democrat right and secure the border she would have gotten much further than trying to sort of disavow her past to fit with the times at the same time I do feel that she has a little bit been set up to fail and the way you can see this is her sort of word salad speeches she wasn't like that when she was running she was able to sort of put together a thought and she's been put in this position that I think a lot of Democrats are in which is that they can't say what they're really thinking with for example you know the border is a mess we have an open border we need to deal with that they can't say that because it implicates their party their side and so she's put in this position that I think a lot of vice presidents are in um to where they have to say something but it can't be the truth, and she's uniquely bad at doing that, at that kind of prevarication. Um, so, I, 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 you know, I, I'm not a big fan. I am sort of—it is very disappointing what's happened, but I also kind of feel for her and for this position that she's been put in, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and that's a great point about Democrats not wanting to talk about the situation at the border. I saw—I was watching Fox last night, and they had a report— from one of the Fox reporters, Bill Malugan, and he was just trying to interview Democratic members of Congress and ask, "Is the border secure?" You know, kind of a stick a microphone in your face, but but that was the only question: "Is the border secure?" And he was being friendly about it, and nobody nobody wanted to take that question. You know, Nancy Pelosi, I think, said something like, "Well, the the border." Must be secure, or something yes. like. Well, well, that's not that's not in up for debate. Everyone in Congress agrees on that. Uh, you, you, giving Kamala Harris that responsibility uh, of of fixing that was uh, was really a gut punch because, again, as you said, she had no expertise there, and it and it's an un, kind of an unfixable problem. It's a problem that requires a lot more actual work from Congress, which is why I like you know sticking the microphone in their faces and and actually having them ask, well, what are you Going to do about it because this is a a problem that the the laws need need to be fixed the the process by which people come into this country legally how that you know how that works that needs to be addressed so that you can have more people choosing that option rather than choosing the you know scramble through the desert you know in the service of of. drug and sex traffickers. Uh, We need to create a legal avenue that makes sense that then we won't have those problems. But Congress has to do that. And of course, they're not interested in doing any any legislating whatsoever for the good anymore.
1: Right. Exactly. And also, I think, you know, the, the, the immigration question was uniquely difficult because President Trump had done such a good job of securing the border, and then Mm -hmm. President Biden sort of ran against that and then undid everything he did. So it became even more complicated because that was how they ran as the sort of anti-Trumps. But Democrats' uncertainty over who's going to run in 2024 comes as persistent inflation continues to shear away at working Americans' savings. According to a new report by the Lending Club, 60 percent of Americans were living paycheck to paycheck in August. Meanwhile, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development said the Fed risks causing a global recession if it continues to hike interest rates. Mm, So, Robbie, where are you on this? Um, You know, what could the Republicans be running on if they wanted To say, look, we have a plan for solving this instead of just complaining on Fox News about how bad it is.
0: Yeah, wouldn't it be refreshing if they had an actual plan? Um, They need to (laughs) run. Look, we know that historically, one of the the major sources of inflation is runaway government spending, and there are plenty of things that Republicans could run against, even that you know many uh, liberals and people on the left and independents would be would agree with. What about you know an endless stream of funding for Ukraine? Is that maybe that could be on the table. Maybe American uh, voters w- would appreciate the chance to weigh in whether our support of Ukraine's war effort should be just totally open-ended, and as Joe Biden has said it, it should be. And if, if, you know, of course, there are other things as well. Republicans have no credibility, unfortunately, on the government spending question because once they take power, they will they will beat they will beat every record for spending. They do it every time, so they have no credibility on, on that issue whatsoever. And I think that's a, that's a huge problem. Uh, because that has historically been a source of a source of inflation obviously the food prices gas prices all of that stuff you know having to do with the breaking down of our supply chains and the pandemic and and unfortunately you know this war that we all want to see brought to an immediate end literally as soon as possible for the good of the people involved in it and you know for the entire european and north american economy so uh, so that, you know that would be that would be something to work toward and you know don't just talk about it like you said don't just talk about it on cable news actually do something way too many people in congress see themselves as as tv pundits which would no disrespect <laughs> we're tv pundits <laughs> but if we had a, if we were actually in congress i'd be voting to stop some of these things uh you know stay in your lane people please All right. I a little bit disagree
1: with you because I think to me when I look at where the inflation is located in 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 the way that it's impacting average Americans, it seems to me to be very localized around the price of gas and the price of food, you know, like real necessities. And so to me, you know, government spending, you know in and of itself. I don't see how that is going to bring down the price of chicken. In fact, I know you're going to disagree with this, but I mm-hmm. think if the government was investing more in making sure that, you know, um, you know, ca- cattle ranchers had more options for meat packing, you know, if they were just, if there was less of a monopoly there, if the government was investing more in having, you know, a wider range of options, I think that would work a lot towards bringing down the price of food. And of course, if we were investing more in, you know, the energy uh, sector we would be able to bring down the price of gas which are two things that definitely the the democrats are not doing right now and i think that would help a lot Mm -hmm. of course you know the war in ukraine a huge issue when it comes to the price of food. Um, we're going to get into this later in the show in terms of, you know, Elon Musk suggesting we get out of this for the good of everybody involved. Um, but, you know, yeah. it, it does seem like there's no desire to de-escalate. Well, no, and
0: I, I, I might like your ideas. I, it, I I would have to look at it more closely, but I presume there are all sorts of policies probably that the government has put in place that help maintain a monopoly by just a few companies on, on, uh, on chicken mm-hmm. and other in industries you've mentioned. I, probably there are a lot of policies. That you and I would agree should absolutely be gotten rid of so you could have actual competition, actual markets in place. But uh, we'll have to look at that another time. And we'll talk more about Ukraine, Elon Musk and some other subjects coming up next. Uh, First, I'll have my radar. Stay tuned for that.
1: What's on your radar, Robbie?
0: Well, this is a fun one, botcha. So Maitland Jones Jr. was a professor of chemistry at Princeton University. In 2007, he semi-retired and began teaching organic chemistry at New York University on an adjunct basis. Not anymore, though. NYU has fired Jones after students circulated a petition protesting that his class was too hard. But according to Jones, the students weren't putting in enough effort and had become disengaged, anxious and indolent as a result of the covid pandemic. Quote, they weren't coming to class. That's for sure, said Jones. They weren't watching the videos and they weren't able to answer the questions. Now, Jones is profiled in a recent New York Times article that chronicles his firing. The piece also raises uncomfortable questions about elite institutions of higher learning and their utter devotion to appeasing unreasonable student demands. Organic chemistry is the bane of medical students everywhere. If you know anyone who went through medical school, they will tell you that. It's a bane precisely because it's such a hard class. But many doctors would argue that's the point. The class is designed to act as an effective gatekeeper preventing underqualified students from entering the field of medicine. This article made my skin crawl, tweeted Alice Dreger, who's a bioethicist, a historian, and a former professor of medical humanities. We aren't going to end up with good doctors by letting undergrad pre-meds pass organic chem because universities want to protect their U.S. news rankings. So according to the New York Times, 82 of Jones' 350 students signed the petition last spring it alleged that too many of them were failing and that this was unacceptable. The students cited emotional and mental health complaints to make the case that Jones ought to make the class less difficult. We urge you to realize that a class class with such a high percentage of withdrawals and low grades has failed to make students' learning and well-being a priority and reflects poorly on the chemistry department as well as the institution as a whole. That was according to the petition. Now, the Times article suggests that throughout the pandemic, Jones made a number of accommodations, actually, for struggling students. He reduced the difficulty of his exams, but students were still failing them. Students were misreading exam questions at an astonishing rate, Jones told the Times. The article does note that the petition never actually called for Jones to be fired. The university did that of its own volition, evidently deciding that the best way to resolve the situation was to cut him loose entirely. His departure is, in my view, a loss, certainly, for NYU's academic caliber. After all, Jones is a lion in the field of organic chemistry. He published 225 papers in his 40-year career. He literally wrote the textbook, Organic Chemistry, which weighs in at a whopping 1,300 pages. Quote, learning to teach during a time when the goal was to teach at a very high and rigorous level. Paramjit Arora, a professor of chemistry at NYU and former colleague of Jones, described his teaching method. We hope that students will see that putting them through that rigor is doing them good. Well, NYU clearly feels differently about the matter. NYU had uh, Professor Maitland, Professor Jones, a faculty member with a one-year appointment specifically to teach organic chemistry. That was according to John Beckman, who's a spokesperson for NYU, who I reached out to for a statement. And Beckman says in one of his organic chemistry classes in the spring of 2022, there were, among other troubling indicators, a very high rate of student withdrawals, a student petition, of course, and course evaluation scores that were by far the worst, not only among members of the chemistry department, but among all the university's undergraduate science courses. Multiple student complaints about his dismissiveness, unresponsiveness, condescension, opacity about grading, etc. Beckman also said, so what exactly would be the argument for renewal of this appointment? NYU has lots of hard courses and lots of tough graders among the faculty. They don't end up with outcomes like this. Surely, among the many things a university should stand up for, including academic freedom, academic rigor, and a robust research enterprise, one of them should be good teaching. Good teaching shouldn't be pitted against rigor as an excuse for poor teaching. Good teaching and rigor are perfectly compatible, and the latter is not a threat to the former at NYU. Again, that was a to the spokesperson. But look, the question isn't whether students deserve good teachers, of course they do, but whether good teachers should feel compelled to pass students who fail to demonstrate mastery of an extraordinarily important and complex subject matter. Celebrated organic chemistry professor Maitland Jones Jr. had high standards, and we can't have that in 2022, writes the leftist author and teacher Freddie DeBoer. NYU students who are by any rational measure some of the most privileged people on planet Earth organized a petition and got him fired. I hope you never get treated by one of the doctors who emerges from this mess. End quote. So, I wanted to highlight this incident, Baccia, uh, which the New York Times, you know, summarized very, uh, very wonderfully, and in, in, it's a, a great article for Bill to read, and I saw, you know, everybody kind of talking about it on social media. And look, I, I, I get that organic chemistry is a nightmare, I, I, you know, I have friends who became doctors, et cetera, who took the class, who described it as extremely difficult but we're getting into this place where you know they're describing kind of their trauma at having had to experience a difficult class um and and that's not like if you're not cut out for it, you're not cut out for it. Part of it is to determine. Like I wouldn't be cut out for it. This is not, I. I could never pass organic chemistry. I wouldn't. I could. not go on to become a doctor. I was not good at science and math. I'm a you know liberal arts person over here. So uh, so take that for what it's worth. But it, it it's difficult on purpose because that's what you need to become a doctor and and to have them you know demand all these accommodations and then the university absolutely wants to fulfill what the students are asking for. No, you know, no respect for that this man has been an effective teacher for like half a century. They want to give in and give these students exactly what they want. And we've seen that happen in so time and time again, it actually even in situations more outrageous than this one. Over and over again, university administrators bending over backward to make their students happy, even if their students are being completely unreasonable. And it's, it's becoming a problem, not just in higher education, but like in the rest of society, because then students who were educated under that paradigm enter, quote unquote, the real world. And they demand, they, they expect that same level of accommodation, which doesn't work when you, if you're, if you're employed by you know a, a company or, or in law or in medicine, et cetera, or in media. And, and we, that's where primarily, probably you and I deal with Uh, what are what are really (laughs) outrageous sometimes, uh, you know, demands for for mental wellness accommodation.
1: So all that is true. And yet, (laughs) I do think that a lot of these fields have pretty random gatekeeping functions assigned to them in the form of extremely difficult classes that you don't really need in the profession. So I a little bit I I mean, you're totally right. These kids sound just awful. (laughs) And you're totally right that universities like NYU have become essentially just, uh, you know, expensive, uh, you know, like high class product, consumer uh, products for the wealthy and that they're just catering to their clientele, et cetera, et cetera. That's all totally true. It's also true that like most doctors are not going to need organic chemistry and that a lot of people who would be amazing doctors Could not pass organic chemistry and so there's a part of me that also feels that um you know a lot of things that are very important to being a doctor there's no test for you know like listening skills and things like that that we just Mm. so i know this sounds like a totally woke Position, but I can't help but feel a little bit like you know we gatekeep for certain things, and it's sort of acknowledged in the field that they you're gatekeeping so that we don't have too many doctors, right? Which is like okay, fine, yeah, we shouldn't have too many doctors, but of course, in the humanities, nobody cares about overproduction of elites. But you know, so yeah, I could I, we could say we need a way to, to to determine who gets to be a doctor who doesn't, and uh, some of what's being done there is like really gross, like the uh, the outward discrimination against Asians, just absolutely disgusting, you know, but at the same time, I also feel like I'm not sure that the gatekeeping apparatus, which is set up around things like organic chemistry, is necessarily always the I mean, of course, some people need organic chemistry if you're an oncologist, maybe. But if you're a gynecologist, you really need to have passed organic chemistry to be a good gynecologist. I'm just not I'm not sold on that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well... Uh, thank you so much for a counter perspective. This is why we love having you on. I, sometimes I have no idea how you will re- uh, react to similar. Th- well, no, I appreciate what you're saying because I have. Sa- I I also think gatekeeping is excessive in a lot of other um, a lot of other context. I think Brianna and I had a heated disagreement on the show like two weeks or so ago when uh, when actually when she was saying, well, don't you know, don't, doctors need to go to medical medical school, which I agreed with, but I was saying that I didn't think, for instance, daycare workers in D.C. They're trying to require. Day- daycare workers to have education degrees, which I think is insane. Um, Right. It prevent it actually prevents like low income immigrant people from getting jobs in Um, Mm D.C. So I generally against gatekeeping. This seems to me to be one instance where you do want to filter out people a little bit, but uh, maybe it could be made easier. But then the other thing, though, is uh, is showing. And look, I I feel for students who, who went through the pandemic, but they're describing how just like utterly utterly uh difficult it was to learn anything through remote learning i think that's important to keep in mind that even at the elite college level remote learning for a lot of people was a farce and just let them totally unprepared um for for what was to come but uh well we have to leave it there but we'll have more rising after this Tesla CEO Elon Musk sent Twitter into an uproarious stupor after tweeting about the war in Ukraine. He wrote in poll form, Ukraine, Russia, peace. Redo elections of annexed regions under U.N. supervision. Russia leaves if that is the will of the people. Crimea, formerly part of Russia, as it has been since 1783 until Khrushchev's mistake. Water supply to Crimea assured Ukraine remains neutral.
1: Musk goes on later in the thread. This is highly likely to be the outcome in the end, just a question of how many die before then. Also worth noting that a possible, albeit unlikely, outcome from this conflict is nuclear war. Venture capitalist and founder of Colin David Sachs, responded to the backlash against Musk, saying the fact that Elon Musk could be attacked as, quote, pro-Russian merely for suggesting a possible peace deal, even though he gave starlink to the Ukrainian war effort, shows how warped and intolerant the public conversation has become. David joins us now to discuss. Welcome, David. Thank you for coming on.
2: Good, good to be here.
1: So you've been um, very vocal um, throughout this conflict in support of de-escalation and peace. Talk us through what that's been like given the climate um, in the discourse more generally.
2: Well, you can see in the response to Elon, and I've been seeing this response for months, that that you, you get an army of Ukrainian sock puppets and bots, as well as scores of blue checks denouncing you and telling you to stay in your lane if you advocate for peace or any kind of diplomatic solution. What was extraordinary about what happened here with Elon is that Zelensky himself weighed in to unleash this Twitter mob against him. And what Zelensky basically said is that if you support a potential peace deal, if you merely float one, then you are you are basically pro-Russian. You're on the Russian side. He created this sharp dichotomy where you're either pro-Russia or you're pro-Ukraine. And if you want any kind of diplomatic deal, you are pro-Russian. Of course, then you had uh, neocons like David Frum weigh in. From basically said that Elon. He said without any evidence whatsoever that. Elon was uh, floating a, quote, trial balloon on behalf of uh, Russian sources uh, with this peace deal. So basically accusing uh, Elon of being a Kremlin agent here. And this is sort of par for the course. But I think what's new here is just that any expression of support for anything but escalation now is deemed to be Putin talking points. Uh, And so what's left? I mean, this is a real shrinking of the Overton window that they're trying to engineer, they're trying to basically suppress uh, our, our our discourse here, so that there's only one acceptable position to take, which is towards greater escalation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And right, you noted the uh, the kind of stay in your lane criticism you get and others have gotten as if uh, have gotten as if as if. Um, our lane is isn't not wanting nuclear war a lane that maybe the entire human race could happily occupy um, the the failure to acknowledge that you know any conflict ends with with unless it. You know, escalates into actual nuclear war, it's going to end with some kind of agreement, some kind of arrangement, some kind of peace deal that will probably leave, uh, you know, no one will be entirely satisfied with what happens there. But, you know, so many of us are watching the U.S.'s kind of just totally open-ended commitment. It's reiterated as an open-ended commitment every time Biden or or other, uh, uh, the State Department officials, other people talk about it. We're like, well, if it's this open-ended commitment, why aren't we also putting pressure on them to go to the table, you know, to, to talk? talk uh, about a peace deal because we don't want this conflict to go on. And that's that's a part that, right, that, that when you see the response from the people you're describing, blue check people, Zelensky himself. And look, I don't, uh, of course, we, I right. don't think anyone begrudges Zelensky himself trying to win this conflict. But like, why is he taking time out, you know, to harass Elon Musk, who put forth a plan that, I mean, ideas that probably that strike me as totally reasonable, probably you, and probably, honestly, probably most, most Americans who, who do not seem nearly as committed to this at-all-cost, whatever-it-takes um, struggle as, our, as our, you know, our officials or the kind of elite consensus does.
2: Right. And, and we appear to be making the great mistake of World War I, which was the handing out of blank check guarantees by great powers to minor powers, and that pulled those great powers into a much larger conflagration. What should have been a relatively minor uh, sort of border war, it should have been the Third Balkans War, got basically blown up into the First World War because these blank check guarantees. That's what basically Zelensky is asking for here in terms of unconditional support from the US, no strings attached, give us unlimited weapons and money, but you are not allowed to have a point of view on how this gets resolved and it's more than that not only is he demanding that he is basically personally engineering this uh this sort of he's leading this twitter mob in terms of policing dissent and closing the overton window and suggesting that if you have any view other than towards greater and greater escalation you are basically a putin apologist or sympathizer or you're actively supporting russia so that, that is basically the thing to be concerned about, is the way in which our own political discourse is now being narrowed in such a way that no position is acceptable except towards greater escalation. So we have here the creation of a one-way ratchet. Where does it lead? I think Elon brought up a good point, which is specifically on this issue of Crimea. Russian Ru- uh, Russia sees Crimea as their territory. It has been since 2014 the the um, the vast majority of the population in Crimea is Russian and if you try to take that away which is a stated war aim of Zelensky in Ukraine and it's actually state department policy that Crimea needs to go back to Ukraine so if you try to engineer that outcome if the war becomes such a route uh that 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 basically is in the cards it is likely that russia would be willing to use nuclear weapons to prevent that total defeat so you know i think it is a very legitimate issue to raise which is where does this end do we have to support ukraine to the point where they are now trying to retake crimea because if we do i do think there's a substantial likelihood that this escalates into a nuclear conflict if not before uh, and it's yeah, not and I think, uh, on behalf of the principle of self determination because I think the vast majority of people who live in Crimea would like to be part of Russia.
1: I I, I, I could not agree with you more. The question of self determination here is key, and 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 what is so interesting to me, is that in March, Zelensky himself. Put on the table, um, you know, agreement to the the exact proposal that Elon Musk tweeted yesterday. In an interview with John Muir, he said that he was, you know, withdrawing his request to join NATO. Right. So there you have the neutrality. He said that he was willing to negotiate on Crimea, and he said the question of the Donbas region would be determined based on how the Ukrainians living there themselves wanted it to be determined. That that was the major sticking point for him, but he was open to negotiations. And so as recently Recently as March, Zelensky himself had agreed to these exact conditions. And now when Elon Musk puts it out there, having spent $80 million of his personal money to ensure that Ukrainians can stay online with Starlink, Zelensky now shows up on Twitter to troll him.
2: Right. So, so you're right. So basically back in March, Zelensky was spouting Putin talking points. Um, I mean, what, what what's happened here, and I, I understand, is that Zelensky has been radicalized by the, the war. I mean, this is a pretty common thing that happens, is that the more losses you suffer, the more dug in and radicalized you become. And this is why wars escalate and peace becomes impossible. And I can understand uh, why Zelensky feels that way in light of the massive losses that Ukraine has taken in this war and how many of his countrymen have been killed. But I do not think it is appropriate for him to try uh, and and basically narrow the Overton window of the American political discourse as he did. He sort of personally led that effort to silence Elon Musk by branding him as some sort of Kremlin apologist and basically unleash this online horde, this sort of the, the, this Twitter cancellation mob on Elon. So he is basically trying to affect and narrow the American political discourse over this war. That is not appropriate. At the end of the day, we are interested as a country in potentially giving him aid, but we are not interested in being part of a suicide pact with him. And uh, and this is where this thing is headed.
0: Yeah, no, you're so right, David. Uh, we so appreciate you uh, joining us today. Thank you so much for your thoughts on this subject.
2: Good, Good to be here,
0: thank you. We'll have more rising right after this. Well, progressives are looking for a new generation of fresh young leaders, according to The Hill, two key national progressive faces, Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Elizabeth Warren, are not in this grouping anymore, and they may want a blank slate in 2024. The Hill's senior political correspondent, Hannah Trudeau, joins us now to tell us more. Hannah, nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. So this is an issue that we've discussed a lot on the show. I think it's of significant interest to our audience, you know, where the progressive movement is headed in terms of national representation, a national spokesperson. Um, you know, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren still obviously still in the Senate, but, you know, getting, getting up there in age questions about, you know, whether either of them would run for president again. I think some people have turned toward uh, AOC as a, you know, the new kind of democratic socialist um, icon in the squad. Uh, Help us, you know, make sense of where all of these things fit in.
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, senators bernie sanders and elizabeth warren are both like you said they're still in the senate they're still doing their day jobs but they're getting up there in age uh sanders is 81 and warren is 73 and while you know biden himself is is up there in age these these two uh potential candidates for 2024 are not necessarily what a lot of people want they want a generational change in leadership. But notably, progressives want somebody that has that strong liberal uh, streak to them. And so the Sanders faction is obviously a national grassroots movement that's still alive and well uh, in a lot of pockets of the country. And many folks who were inspired by his bids want to see him take a third stab at it. Um, Elizabeth Warren you know, had a sizable group of supporters, namely college-educated folks, uh, a lot of women, um, but failed to get that sort of national traction in the same way, at least at the ballot box, that Sanders did, and so there are natural questions kind of starting now, weeks before even the midterms, about who could be the next generation to take up that progressive mantle, not just somebody who's young and who's a Democrat and who's considered a rising star broadly, but somebody who is committed to, if not necessarily the Sanders wing, but something in between the Sanders and Warren wing. Um, a lot of folks in the hardcore left, obviously, as, as you know, friends of this show know, are not super inspired by Elizabeth Warren's brand of progressive ideology, but um, I think folks are looking for something in the middle and definitely somebody that's maybe one, two or three generations younger than certainly than Biden or or than those two senators.
1: So Hannah, give us the gossip. Tell us some names that that have come up in your reporting. Yeah, so
3: the tricky part of all of this is whenever I pose this question to progressives, uh, either people, you know, grassroots movement leaders, activists, lawmakers, uh, even some voters, there's always a question mark. It's always literally a head scratch of, (laughs) well, we really liked Sanders or we really liked Warren, but they're too old. So, you know, what about AOC or what about and then after AOC, like you mentioned at the beginning of the segment, the names are kind of like blank. It's 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 funny at this point, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. A lot of folks uh, think so. When when the names do kind of come out and are pulled out uh, from the list, we hear folks like uh, Ro Khanna, who's number no number one, I think, in terms of. Um, who's floated the most often. He's obviously a congressman from California, doesn't have a ton of name recognition yet, Uh, did uh, co-chair Sanders 2020 campaign. So he's known in those progressive circles and he's very well liked um, on the left and also within some pockets of sort of like I was mentioning the Warren wing, who's not necessarily as progressive, but still obviously liberal uh, and, and wants that ideology represented. So He's uh, top of mind for a lot of people. He's also, this goes without saying, but he's not white, um, which is a big ding in some folks mind against Sanders and Warren and a lot of progressives um, who are looking for gender and uh, racial diversity in in their leader. Uh, another name that's floated, not as often, but has been more in recent days, is California Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, who is, as one person put it to me, you know, not hated by the left, which is always kind of, you know, a thing that has to be considered, because there are always, as you guys know, a lot of these ideological, these purity tests um, get floated, and so I, I, it was a little bit surprising to me, covering this stuff day to day, that Newsom isn't somebody that's reviled, um by by the progressive left he is kind of i think they're kind of sniffing him out they're seeing does mm. he have uh what it takes to be that movement leader and he's certainly you know more nationally known than than Khanna even though they come from the same state
0: that's uh that's very interesting and kind of surprising to me uh yeah Ro, representative khanna has been interviewed on our program uh numerous times i i think is certainly uh someone who has credibility with um the with the left progressives who watch this show, Gavin Newsom, on the other hand, I, I don't know. Look, I associate him mostly with you know very intense pandemic restrictions. Um, I don't know that I, I, I there are c- certainly many uh, uh, progressives, leftists who support um, you know s- strict pandemic uh, restrictions. There are also some that d- that do not who you know found thought, thought that they were some various mandates were tyrannical or went too far. Um, and, and also, Gavin Newsom is, is known for you know. Uh, having those and then not himself following them um i, I mean, california is a progressive state so there's you know there has been certainly progressive legislation um we, we, we talked yesterday about how he's turning california into like a sanctuary state for gender affirming care or something like that so so i see how uh, particularly on maybe on social or cultural issues he could be a progressive standard bearer i i I would have to think knowing from you know from talking to some of my co-hosts my you know progressive co-hosts that on economic on class-based grounds it would surprise me if he's uh if he's if he's enough for uh, for what uh, you know, Sanders and Warren type people uh, want, and, and also the debate, the dis- disagreement between Sanders and Warren people, being as far as I can tell, mostly about you know how the campaigns went down and some sort of sort of personal staffing acrimony and you know Warren's perceived kind of betrayal or, or making it about about her own gender and how you know Sanders had allegedly said things to her uh, about how a woman c- couldn't win or something mm-hmm. that he absolutely denies ever saying. So I don't know. That's a long way of saying that. Uh, I'm interested, I'm interested who, you know, who told you their view. I think Newsom, were you talking about Gavin Newsom himself? He might, I I, I would understand him saying, yes, progressives love me. I'm definitely (laughs) going to be the choice of of, of progressives. I don't know about anyone else.
1: Yeah, if I could could just jump in. Hannah, can you, can you talk us through the policy? I think what Robbie's getting at is. What is the difference between the Sanders and the Warren p- camps from a policy point of view? And what are these people looking for in the next progressive standard bearer from a more like policy oriented p- point of view?
3: Yeah, I know. That's a great that's a great way of putting it. I mean, I think that's that's where the key differences do come down for me, having followed you know the 2020 campaign and then. Now the lead up to 2024 it it is it is a policy debate and it's a difference of ideology over economic issues versus the cultural issues in terms of the sanders and warren faction that's what it boils down to people can quibble about um differences like robbie was saying strategy and what went down tactics tactics wise but in terms of ideology i mean the the sanders wing is looking for somebody to pick up the mantle like Kana, i think is the closest person in this regard uh, to really hit the the nail on the head over these the economic uh, populist policies uh, in, in her, things wealth inequality, obviously things like climate change, tying it up tying those issues into racial racial justice issues is a big part of that movement, and it's and it really stems down to just economics being number one. Nothing nothing else um, in in that worldview matters as much, and and in in fact sort of informs. The other broader cultural debates in, in that view, and I think that that's the leader that they want. It's very hard to find in the modern sort of Democratic Party that that Biden world is functioning in. That voters are functioning in this moderate kind of electorate. We're, we're looking at the Senate uh, and and kind of assessing: is it possible to have an economic populist? I would argue the closest to that currently running is John Fetterman, who is you know doing quite well and making that case. So somebody like that. Um, Mandela Barnes is doing that a little bit, uh, too, although he's leaning in more towards the Warren wing of the cultural issues, um, you know, to make his case in Wisconsin. But, uh, the other side of things are, you know, Robbie, like what you said about Gavin Newsom with the, uh, sanctuary cities debate, the, you know, transgender equality debate, those are more of the cultural social issues that of course are a big part of the progressive left. Some folks in the Warren camp and even some folks in the, in the Sanders camp, they want that to be represented as well but that's secondary it's 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 economic uh, populism as number one uh kana is is really trying to make that case early he's been you know doing a lot of the moves that any type of presidential aspirant would be making i i was catching up with him on the phone just a couple of weeks ago and i said it's it's kind of loud in the background you know where, where are you and he goes oh i'm just hopping on a jet blue flight to new hampshire you know don't mind me and so i think like okay you know he's on his way to new hampshire i think that was the second trip uh, it, so, you know, we, we keep tabs on these people just to kind of sense where their minds are, um, but certainly a candidate on the left is going to be one anybody that that takes up that Sanders mantle and, and Warren mantle to a lesser extent uh, is going to have to be focused on on economic populism um, that's what I hear that's what I hear from progressives.
0: As The Onion once put it, area family's trip to New Hampshire sparks rumors of presidential bid. Like
3: right. One. And that's my home state. So I'm hanging there myself on, on Thursday. Uh
0: Uh <laughs> 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 Well, Hannah, thank okay. you so much uh, for joining us today. We really appreciate it.
3: Thanks, guys.
0: And stay tuned for more Rising right after this. The Daily Beast released exclusive reporting yesterday claiming that Republican Senate candidate for Georgia and former football star Herschel Walker, who is vehemently pro-life on the campaign trail, paid for a girlfriend to have an abortion when she became pregnant with his child in 2009. The woman who has asked the Daily Beast to remain anonymous supported these claims with a $575 receipt from the abortion clinic, a get well card from Walker allegedly, and allegedly a bank deposit receipt that included an image of a signed $700 personal check from Walker.
1: Now, Walker has totally denied these claims. He says he plans to sue the outlet, calling the piece a, quote, flat out lie and a, quote, repugnant hatchet job by a Democratic activist disguised as a reporter. Meanwhile, Walker's 18-year-old son, Christian Walker, subsequently spoke out on Twitter, writing, I know my mom and I would really appreciate if my father, Herschel Walker, stopped lying and making a mockery of us. You're not a family man when you left us to bang a bunch of women, threatened to kill us, and had us move over six times in six months running from your violence. Walker then responded to his son tweeting, I love my son no matter what.
0: As of now, the Real Clear Politics average has the Georgia Senate race in a dead heat with Walker at 46.3 percent and Democratic incumbent Reverend Raphael Warnock at 47 percent. So, uh, look. This is, and, and Christian Walker has been continuing to weigh in on this uh, with several other uh, tweets and messages and, and videos, etc. Um, this is a very difficult and uncomfortable time, obviously, for his family. I don't, you know, relish talking about. Personal family drama stuff whatsoever, and uh, t- to be clear, Herschel Walker has um, has denied this. Uh, but look, this is uh, this is a pretty serious um, you know, allegation in terms of where um, you know Herschel Walker's political positions are now. I've seen some conservatives saying like, "Well, is it you know this was 10 years ago? May he, it, the point is, has he changed his view since then? You know, he's pro-life now; he wasn't then." I don't know if that's persuasive at all to to people who care about the abortion issue and are gonna be voting for this. And I just have to say like, What are Republican primary voters doing? You know, this is another Senate race that could have easily been won. Maybe it will still be, but it is in—I mean, this is— Republican control of Congress is coming down to a few races where Republican primary voters and, I have to say, Donald Trump picked— candidates that were far more that were deeply flawed and far more likely to lose than the the options they had and at some point like look people you get the candidates you voted for and you voted for this and and now this is would not surprise me at all if this is going to be a a a democratic victory in what ought to have been a republican victory so i you know, not i mean we're a political news show so i'm looking at the political aspect of it obviously the you know the hypocrisy and the salaciousness, you know, are things other people are going to cover, Uh, you know, that's fine, whatever. But um, looking at the politics, it's just, Republican primary voters have to get better standards. They just have to.
1: Yeah. I I mean, if it was just the abortion, um, allegedly that he paid for, I mean, people do that, that kind of like, to me, that's very low grade hypocrisy. You know, we all do stuff in our personal life that we're not proud of, um, right. I, it, to me, the much more disturbing allegation is his son alleging that there was violence. Um, yeah, yeah. I I really feel that, that that is the kind of thing that I would like to see Republican voters say. You know what? We're we're willing to lose this one um, if that turn if that bears out. We want to know and, more about this. We right. Want to and and Christian
0: uh, Christian Walker said you know in one of his statements that like, look, this is not that I. You know people who who over who make amends for past bad behavior is one thing but and is suggesting that that 's not the situation at all that you know he has not made it right for the family and and et cetera you know suggested that some of the stuff was Possibly more ongoing, you know, more recent than obviously than fifteen years ago. So, uh, so, so you know, not a, a case of, of of failure that was then overcome. And and so, I, I, I you know, t- obviously take that for what it's worth. This is you know, family drama stuff is can be very vicious and very bad. And there can be you know, things can be gotten wrong and misconstrued, or there can be ill intent on multiple sides. But I mean, the reality is that that he is not a good. Candidate, given all of this, right? Not just an alleged um, abortion, but alleged violence is what is what uh, Christian his son is suggesting. A son who, by the way, you know, has not been trying to he torpedo. Him. Yes, yeah. his campaign whatsoever. He did yeah. uh, perform. He did appear in a campaign event. Christian Walker is a conservative. A, a, manifest conservative views does a lot of videos on you know being over identity politics and how you know how the left is because he's a gay black conservative man how the left doesn't understand him you know that kind of thing so it's it's not it does not seem like he would he's try he's not trying to destroy his dad's political career because he doesn't like his politics or something like that but but rather suggesting that there is a, a really a, a issues there in terms of how he was treated and how the family's been treated again it's uh it's 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 very tough. I, I I feel I feel for people whose um, you know interpersonal, whose family drama is is put is thrust into the national spotlight like this. But you know, look, if you're going to run, this, it, realistically, that's going to happen if you run for uh, for Congress, if you run for Senate. So you know, if you have a lot of if, if you have this much baggage, this this many family issues that have not been sorted out, that you should you should not. You should not seek higher office. I mean, that's different than, you know, we're going to get to a place, cancel culture is so crazy, we're going to get to a place like, you know, someone who called someone, a, 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 you know, stupid when they were like 13 is going to be disqualified from running at the rate mm-hmm. we're going. That is, that I'm totally against. This is, a this is different than that. This is, there's more uh, underlying allegations here um, at where we, we would, <laughs> Republican, again, Republican primary voters would be justified in calling for candidates who are a little bit. Um, uh, cleaner than this, I would say.
1: Yeah, and I think it's the point you made about um, Trump picking so poorly and then the primary following his choice. In both cases, he picked, you know, the famous person, right? Dr. Oz and Herschel Walker are the person he used to see on TV, right? Which tells you just so much about where his head is at and his political judgment at this moment, I think.
0: Yeah, right. I expect uh, Democrats to lose both those races. Uh, There's some evidence that Pennsylvania might be getting closer, a little closer than people expect. And then I I think they're going to lose. I think Republicans will lose Arizona. I think they'll still win Ohio. And then it really all comes down to like Nevada. We'll see. We'll see. It's going to be it's going to (laughs) be another another nail biter. Another you know 49-51, 50-50, or 51-49 are by far the most likely outcomes. So, uh, so the, the writers of this season deliver again, as we like to joke about, the, the, this is just a scripted drama um, poorly, poorly cast at that. But we'll have more rising for you right after this. Former President Donald Trump is suing CNN for defamation. The Don alleges defamation and is seeking $475 million in punitive damages.
1: The 29 page lawsuit also alleges that CNN took part in a, quote, campaign of dissuasion in the form of libel and slander that, quote, escalated in recent months due to the fact that the network fears a Trump 2024 bid.
0: The lawsuit specifically takes issue with CNN's use of the words racist and insurrectionist, as well as associations made between the former president and Adolf Hitler. CNN has not issued a statement on the lawsuit as of this morning. And I, he also objects to, I think, the term big lie, which obviously was used uh, repeatedly on CNN until its new, uh, I think its new president, Chris Licht, uh, said, famously said that he didn't think that terminology should necessarily be used anymore. I was on uh, Reliable Sources with our old friend Brian Stelter uh, when that came down, and uh, we discussed it a little bit. And I, I, th- I think I remember saying that you know, while the things Trump has said about the election are in fact false, I don't know that it's maybe the biggest lie of all time is probably, or in our in our recent political tradition is probably that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Right in terms of. How consequential and damaging a lie might be. Um, this lawsuit, the, however, I make, I, I give very little chances of succeeding uh, in any sense because the things Trump is describing are just opinion, are not, um, are not actionable. Because you know, trying to dissuade people from voting for Donald Trump is not at all a crime. It's not libelous. It's not any of the <laughs> things he's talking about. Uh, am I am I missing something here, Bacha?
1: No, my understanding of defamation is, first of all, like you said, if something is labeled opinion is clearly an opinion, right? Like that, Trump is anything like Hitler. I mean, I think that's a pretty wrong opinion, pretty ignorant and silly opinion, but it's still an opinion. And um, to you know, for libel, you have to be able to prove that something is not only not true, but that the person thought it wasn't true when they said it. And it's pretty clear that people on CNN are pretty convinced that Trump is you know racist when they say it. So I think you know the the, the lawsuit. I agree with you. I don't know how much merit there is in this. I will say, like everything he says about them, what they have done, you know, that they are trying to dissuade people from voting him for him in the form of giving their opinions repeatedly that he is somebody akin to Hitler that is all true and is really problematic but the problem is that they believe it the problem is not that they're sort of libeling him or defaming him it's that they actually that the people who are in charge of telling the great American story are so wrong in a way that's just so so obvious to everybody but them
0: Right right whether it makes for good uh, you know political commentary or good journalism totally different matter, uh, I would argue in many cases it doesn't but like you, but um, but calling someone names, you know, is just so obviously protected under the First Amendment. It, I think it's, it's, it can be helpful to, you know, compare this to some of the other high-profile cases of alleged, you know, libel, defamation, et cetera. You know, think of like, you know, Nicholas Sandman, right, as the kid in the, in the Covington um, uh, incident on the Lincoln Memorial steps. And his lawsuit alleges, you know, a factual, a, a lawsuits against various media companies. He's alleging a, something that was factual actually wrong that you know that the way they described him getting into the face and not letting the native american man pass walk past him like that was a that was a factual claim it wasn't just you know describe then describing him as glaring rather than staring well that was opinion that's a description that didn't part of it didn't matter but the fact that he he was described as having gotten in the way and physically Prevented um, the, the Native American protester from getting past him. That was determined to be a factual assertion that was not correct, and then you know then it was. And they settled, I, I think, in, in all of these cases, so it was never actually weighed upon. But the strength of his case rested on that being a factual determination, not just opinion. Like, similarly, someone maybe like, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse can say, well, if they describe, you know, they said he shot some media outlets or some commentator said he shot uh, black people or, or that or that the people he shot had not, um, were not armed, you know, all of the, uh, and I, I, you know, at least one of them, right, did have some kind of weapon and, and they were they were actually not black people. So those were fact- Actual assertions that uh, that made it so that per, you know perhaps he could have uh, sought so, but now of course if those were right, if those were honest mistakes, that doesn't necessarily then make it liable for a public person, for a, a person of some notoriety, which uh, you know Rittenhouse was by the time he was fi- he would be in a position to file a lawsuit. Um, Sandman, I I think was actually judged to not be a public person because while this was all happening, he was mm-hmm. just a random kid. Uh, but for, for a public person, that yeah, the it's it's not just. Somebody says something wrong. That doesn't mean you can sue them. It has to be like, like you said, actual malice. There has to be right either they knew it was wrong, or it was so it was so negligent. It was so obvious that they should have known it was wrong based on what whatever like common journalist practice should have been. If you have those elements, then maybe you have um, a, a libel suit or defamation suit. You just like <laughs> obviously clearly don't have that don't have that here. But um, but uh, I, I don't yes, know. It, it's I- yeah.
1: I was going to say, as somebody who very closely followed the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, which I'm sure you did not, but I watched every, almost every minute of it really? that I could because it was so fascinating. Yes. So many people were saying beforehand, this is such a high bar to clear. Um, you know, but he cleared it. You know, yeah. he did win because he was able to show malice. He was able to sh- to convince the jury that she had intentionally misrepresented him in this way on factual grounds. Um, like you said, I can't help but feel that the reason um, uh, former President Trump is doing this now, I don't you know, obviously I have no basis for saying this except my, my own understanding of the political wins. But it does to me seem like he's a little bit. Um, getting upstaged by Ron DeSantis as enemy number one of CNN. And he wants to sort of put it back in voters' minds like, no, 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 I'm the one who said they're enemy of the – it's me, I'm their biggest (laughs) enemy, right? He wants to hear people on, you know, on Newsmax and on, you know, OAN saying like, oh, look, you know, CNN, they really hate him, right? They called him all these things. Remember, they really hate him, right? Because that has sort of become a real bargaining chip for Republican um, people seeking office.
0: I think that's 100% accurate, and uh, yeah, he's he's not been, uh, he he definitely wants to be in the spotlight, especially if he does actually intend to try to recapture um, the GOP nomination for president, something that DeSantis might uh, have something to say about, but we will certainly see. Uh, Looking forward to that and more rising coming up in just a minute. Well, Bros is a new film that was promoted as the first gay romantic comedy from a major studio with an almost entirely gay cast, but did not meet its goal at the box office last week. According to the New York Times, homophobia cannot be ruled out as one of the reasons why the movie doesn't seem to be resonating with audiences, selling about $4.8 million in tickets opening weekend, which is 40% less than expected.
1: Comedian and co-writer of the movie Billy Eichner tweeted in response, quote, That's just the world we live in, unfortunately. Even with glowing reviews, great Rotten Tomatoes scores, and a cinema score, etc., straight people, especially in certain parts of the country, just didn't show up for bros, and that's disappointing, but it is what it is. He added, Everyone who isn't a homophobic weirdo should go see bros tonight. You will have a blast, and it is special and uniquely powerful to see this particular story on a big screen, especially for queer folks who don't get this opportunity often. I love this movie so much.
0: Hmm. Yes. Well, what do you think, Botcha? People <laughs> refusing to see this movie because they hate they hate the LGBT community.
1: I think the move of buy my thing or you're a bigot is probably seems to the person saying it very powerful, but is not um great uh, incentive <laughs> to go see something. I mean, for God's sake, how many people does he think go see straight rom coms anymore? Not very many. I mean that that's a genre that's been sort of I mean Genre I love is very clear and close to my heart. I think, yeah, I love those movies. I will watch them, but you know, I'm very much in a shrinking minority. And it's so great that this movie was made. Like, I don't understand why you have to then go and say, um, if it's not somebody's thing, they hate gay people. I mean, it's so obviously not the case. You know, people on Twitter were bringing up all these great counter examples like Brokeback Mountain, which did, you know, bonkers at the box office, and people telling really funny stories about about how they ended up seeing it with, like, grandparents because they thought it was a Western. (laughs) And then, you know, like, there's just so much evidence to suggest that, like, um, Americans are not bigoted. They are not homophobic. We're so totally past that whole part of our history. And I remember when Eichner got up at, I forget which, awards show and said, you have to go see my movie so we can show it to the homophobic Supreme Court that, you know, our rights are not for sale. We're not going backwards. It's like... Come on, man! Like that. First of all, it was only Justice um, uh, yeah. Clarence Thomas who even suggested that Griswold was going to be, you know, reconsidered. The rest of them were completely against that. I mean, it was—it's just so uh, seeing him yeah. have this meltdown and then say, "Because you wouldn't see my thing and buy my thing, therefore you hate people like me." I just found that to be really a uh, uh, gross.
0: Eigner came this close to saying like Ukraine needs you to see this movie. It was it was that level he didn't actually, but you know what I mean? It was that level of like you totally. mu- you are not part of the cause, you're not a good person unless you see it. Totally. I, I don't wanna be I don't wanna be mean, um I don't like to be mean to people, but I don't think my issue I don't find I don't find Billy Eichner very funny. I just I like I've not enjoyed his, I, that uh, those street the interviews he did. Maybe she, I would hate that kind of thing. Like I I I don't care for that kind of humor. I didn't like his Parks and Recreation character very much. So, I, I think I'd be more likely to see the movie if it was a different actor than him. Which sounds really again really mean, but uh, but he's he's being kind of mean on social media about this. So. So uh, I yeah I just have never really gotten why his thing is is particularly funny, but um, I mean but... I think even
1: you know even if some somebody can even say I don't want to see a movie which dramatizes uh, two men having sex and not be a homophobe right like you can be out there saying I totally respect people's rights to do this, I totally respect people's rights to make this movie, I just don't wanna watch it. That does not make you in any way a bigot. Um, But what does make you a bigot is something actually that Billy Eichner tweeted that people were uh, mentioning, right? He has, he tweeted in the past, uh, what was it? Get your fictional hateful Bible stories and your fake fictional religious BS out of our effing lives. F you. I Mm. mean, that is hateful.
0: Yeah, that was in response to uh, to the Roe decision. Roe being overturned. Look, I, but you made a, a great point about like going to see like I wouldn't go to see probably a, a romantic comedy in theaters. Period. Like, I, if, if if it was on TV, if this was on TV, I'd probably watch it. Um, but i'm not going to like i only i only go to the movies basically to see superhero films gay superhero film is, is whenever <laughs> marvel has its first you know gay marvel movie i will see it night of i cuz i see every marvel movie night of um uh i'm a you know a true fan but uh so I, I don't know. I think <laughs> I think that's probably more the case, like you said, than anything having to do with. Uh, well, yeah, certainly some people look. There, some people are homophobic. Some people are racist. Some people are sexist, et cetera. You do have to. Ign- I mean, I think you have to acknowledge like the tremendous um, uh, uh, progress, right, the country has made on all those uh, on all those fronts. The, L- the progress LGBT acceptance has made, you know, in our lifetimes in just like the last fifteen years. Is staggering, and I, I'm sure you know some people will argue it needs to go further. I, I, too don't want to see any of the legal, you know, protect gay marriage or gay adoption or anything like that rolled back. But, um, but uh, you know, it's again, this is this is really about a movie studio's bottom line. That the, you know, the movie studio yeah. would like you to think this is for the good of humanity, but um, really it's just about the movie studio's bottom line. And you know, the pivot yeah. for so many in. Uh, progressivism or advocates of progressive causes to be about, and, and this is something you know you complain about, and and our other hosts have complained about that it had the corporate takeover of it, where it's like, yes, you have supporting the cause means supporting like products and brands is, uh, is is how activism cynically getting challenged through like a capitalist lens. It's something I find as someone who is not hostile to capitalism, just sort of more amusing than anything else. But uh, no, I don't think the the cause is really uh, is really impugned by whether. Anyone sees this movie or not? Again, no disrespect to Billy Wagner. I'm sure many people find him very funny. I just personally do not find that kind of humor funny. I find a lot of things not funny. takes takes a lot to make me laugh. <laughs> only only uh, only uh, only your your charming, lovely remarks, Batya. <laughs> yeah, I'll just say one last point,
1: which is like I actually don't watch superhero movies because I find it very hard. To um, imagine myself in that scenario, and for me, that's a big part of you know, is this the escapism? Is like you sort of picture yourself in that situation, and I think that the, part of what might have happened here is that rom coms are a very female-oriented mm. genre, and you're just, you're not homophobe. I'll probably actually go see it because I, I would probably really like it, but, you know, its you're not a homophobe to say, you know, what I'm trying to do with my escapism is be able to imagine myself in a scenario, and if the lead is somebody who's attracted to men, it, that makes it much harder for the people who this genre has traditionally, you know, been targeted at.
0: I don't like to picture myself as a superhero either i picture myself as a supervillain.
1: villain <laughs> oh, i love that yes,
0: yes. <laughs> all right enough of this silliness we'll have more rising right after this stay with us
1: columbia university professor and well-known economist jeffrey sachs said that he quote would bet end quote, that the U.S. is responsible for last week's Russian-owned Nord Stream Pipeline attack, a notion that Bloomberg host Tom Keene vehemently pushed back on. Here's a bit of that back and forth on Bloomberg TV yesterday.
4: Why do you feel that that was a U.S. action? What evidence do you have of that? Well, first of all, there's direct radar evidence that U.S. uh, helicopters, military helicopters that are normally based in Gdansk uh, were uh, circling over this area. We also had the threats from the United States earlier in this year that one way or another we are going to end Nord Stream. We also have a remarkable statement by Secretary Blinken last Friday in a press conference. He says this is also a tremendous opportunity. It's oh. a strange way to. It's, uh, sorry, it's a strange way to talk. If you're worried about the piracy on international infrastructure Professor. of vital significance. So I know this runs counter to our narrative. It runs, you're not allowed to say these things uh, in, in, uh, in the West. But the fact of the matter is, all over the world, when I talk to people, they think the okay. US did it.
0: So there it is. That's uh, Professor Sachs' view of the situation. So uh, Jeffrey Sachs is someone I have. I disagree with um, uh, some of the things he thinks, but other things I think he's been kind of perceptive about. Um, for a while, I, I, I viewed him as someone who had a, a far too deferential to the Chinese government kind of view. Uh, he was... Frankly, being I think sort of a useful idiot for them in uh, in you know, how he was describing the things happening with the Uyghur Muslims, for instance, um, his and his economic his previous kind of economic advocacy, I actually I know has very irritated people on the left. Um, he has been accused of like you know be kind of promoting disaster capitalism or something. On those things, I probably wouldn't have maybe as much disagreements with him. But then he was someone uh, er, fairly early on saying uh, that COVID-19 very well looked to him like something that could have emerged from a lab funded by U.S. technology. Uh, He's subsequently said, I, I believe that uh, animal spillover is also possible, but uh, that, you know he was someone thinking that explanation, and of course we still don't know. But I, I'm you know kind of more in the lab leak camp. So look, I, I, bottom line being he, that he's an interesting thinker, and people should you know take listen to what he says and then consider whether they agree with it. And I, he is pointing out to me you know very uh, tr- uh, true aspects of this that. I, I would absolutely understand why someone would wonder whether this is in fact US malfeasance based on the things US officials had said. All of that said, I am still really not sold that it was the US. It, would, it, would it shock me to find that out? No, it wouldn't shock me because the you know, US intelligence, we have done thing, interfering kind of things in other countries. We have a history of that but still you know this is a pipeline between Russia and Germany which is a US ally so we're in a in a way it is almost like it would be an attack on Germany who we who are allied with so it would ultimately I do not think it is like the occam's razor for you know what the most likely thing is probably what happened the US doing this doesn't seem like the m- most likely thing to me
1: yeah, I think where I disagree with him is, and we talked about this yesterday. Um, you know, Anthony Blinken saying this presents a huge opportunity is a statement of fact. Uh, I, to me, that does not suggest that the U.S. did it. We don't know who did it. It's possible that we did, but I, like you, feel a little bit skeptical. Although I'm hearing more and more people who I respect, you know, sort of floating that as an idea. I, I disagree that us recognizing this as an opportunity means we did it. However, um, that interview began. Um, with Sachs saying, "I am on the side of peace," and his point. That at this point, um, you can weaken Russia's position to the point where you are engaged in escalation. You are engaged and responsible for civilian casualties by not giving Russia an off-ramp for this thing that is, by the way, completely Russia's fault. You know, g- atrocities have happened. Uh, thousands and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. That, that all is true. That has happened. And yet... We have to think honestly and clearly about how to put an end to this. And I totally take his point that we seem to be on the wrong side of that. We seem to be on the side of escalation rather than on the side of de-escalation.
0: Yeah, no, I... I think that's I think that's so right. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a point we make a lot on the show that that it is not pro Russian. It's not excuse making for Russia. I tolerate zero excuse making for what Russia has done to to Ukraine and to frankly the rest of the world because so much of the economic uh, issues that we're dealing with and that Europe is dealing with can be traced directly to this but that but reality is reality right and we have to we have to seek an off-ramp because that is the only way we can ever get out of this conflict no who would want how could you want you know ukraine to be bogged down in guerrilla warfare for years and years and years as 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 happened in other uh, other countries that were invaded by the US or by Russia etc you know, Afghanistan you know, the, v- the Vietnam experience Iraq et etc, we need to we don 't want that to happen um, and, and we shouldn't want that to happen and so, so we need especially g- given how much money we're giving them and how much we're doing for them, it needs to be accompanied by a push for for peace talks. Um, and then, obviously, they need to continue to figure out what exactly happened with, uh, with Nord Stream. It's, it's a weird situation because it doesn't make a lot of sense really for anyone to have done it, but they're saying it clearly was sabotage, so we, we do need to know what happened there. If it was the U.S., I mean, heads should absolutely roll. This was a totally, absolutely, unbelievably unacceptable um, act of, of, of war, act of, of confrontation, again, against, against a, a nation we're not at war with, Russia. And a, and a nation we are is a solidly ally of ours. So I truly, if that if it's that, that would be you know the the, the people who would have to pay for that would be significant. But um, we should will we'll see. And I, I like you. I've heard you know smart people saying that it does sound like that uh, like us. I've heard smart, but also I've heard people I trust saying that no way. It's just probably mm-hmm. Russia uh, because mm-hmm. they're the most proximate to do something like that. So we'll you know we'll have to just. Keep our eyes and ears open and and see what information emerges about the reality of the situation. Absolutely. And we'll have more rising right after this.
2: And, And you've stuck by it. In fact, you're one of the few Democrats now who still says, let's defund the police. Are you worried at all that that could hurt some of your colleagues going into the midterm elections? See, the, the thing about defund the police is we have to tell the entire narrative. People hear defund the police, but you know what they'll say? Say reallocate, say divest, say move, uh, but it's still the same thing. We can't get caught up on the words. We People spend more time focusing on the word defund than they spend on caring and addressing the problem of police violence in this country.
0: That was representative Cory Bush on ABC this morning. What do you think, Bacha? Was defund the police done because of its name, or is it the policy itself?
1: So I have to say, like, going into this, I can never talk about Cori Bush without talking about how incredible her story is. This is a woman who was homeless when she already had children, living in her car. Her experience is the kind that we need more of in Congress, and we have so little of. So it's always a little bit heartbreaking to me when she takes up these positions that, to me, seem very much... Sort of aligned with a much more white progressive elite um than with the people that I think um, really look to her for leadership. Um, you know, the defund the police, you know, it, everything she said would be bad. Defunding it is bad. Reallocating it is bad. Having fewer police officers is bad. Now, I say that with a lot of humility to the to experiences I'm sure she has had or people she's close to ha- have had with police officers. We know that there's a problem with the police. We know we need police reform. Um, but you only get that by giving people more money. You only get mm. that by incentivizing good behavior. You only get that by, you know, investing you know from a, a variety of different ways whether it's community policing whether it's training you know whatever it is um that's how you fix those problems that i i i speak you know with a lot of humility as someone who has not faced them myself you know um and and i'm sure she has uh, but i just think this is not the way and, and you see the hypocrisy when she was asked uh maybe a year ago about her own personal security, which, you know, costs her state, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, You know, they said to her, you're saying defund the police, but you have private security. Isn't that that hypocritical? And her answer was so, um, it really left me um, feeling kind of hopeless because she said something along the lines of, you know, people, I need it. You know, people want to hurt me. People want to kill me. And it's like, well, you know, the members of the black community are really the, the the vast majority of people struggling with this crime wave, you know, disproportionately impacted by it. And we know from sociologists that the only way you can stop crime is to have more cops on the street. So I feel very conflicted about this. What about you, Robbie?
0: Right. I, I think there are categories of policing where y- you certainly could do with less of it. I, I'm not convinced that cops in most schools are doing uh, much good at all. I think they tend to make, first of all, they have performed abysmally in the actual, in the very rare, but occasional mass shooter situations, they performed absolutely abysmally. And then I think they tend to cause minor disciplinary issues between students that should be handled by teachers and parents end up being handled by the criminal justice system because there's a police present. So I'm totally unpersuaded that putting cops in schools has done anything good. Um, You know, I, I think the SWAT Teams, the the tanks, the the military type gear that some police departments have gotten, that then lends them to themselves to doing more kind of you know military style no knock raids, banging down people's doors in the middle of the night, you know, the Breonna Taylor type stuff. I, I think most people see those kinds of police over overreach, and then also what you know police do when they take your stuff. The civil asset forfeiture needs so much reform. So there are lots of areas of policing where I do really think. Uh, reform needs to take place but you're so right in that the kind of the street crime we're seeing the, the crime that so many people in their communities are worried about in, in in city places where a lot of poor people and people of color live right they 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 don't want uh, police totally like, defunded or gotten rid of or taken out of their neighborhoods because they need, like they need, policing service needs to be done. So it'll be it'll be supplied yeah. privately or it'll be supplied publicly, but it yeah. is their they're society, a society that cannot like eliminate Violence or bring violence down to an acceptable acceptable degree, like is not a society at all. So it's almost it's almost a tautology to say that like we don't need police. You, you need policing on some level, or else you don't even have a civilization. Um, and that you know that comes through so clearly when you actually ask people, which is something I know you do a lot of, bach You know, ask people to write about their experiences, and outside that elite perspective, you know, they're not saying they might have criticisms of the police like we do, and they might want different priorities. They might you know question. Some of these things, but they certainly don't want a total, a total disinvestment in the police. Feels like probably a disinvestment just in their communities on the whole, which is not something um, anyone wants. And I, I think is where maybe this a little bit of this breakdown is. But to be clear, there are a lot of policing practices that I think are abominable and should be and should be reformed. And I, I certainly understand the visceral frustration that many people have with the police. I felt it, you know, when watching that footage of Uvalde. I mean, I, I'm like, oh my God, fire all these people. This is abhorrent. This is unacceptable for employees who work for the public, who are paid by the public to behave this way. But it's just it's so clear that getting rid of the police entirely is not a solution uh, at all whatsoever. And is not something people actually want.
1: Yeah. And I think Corey Bush sort of with the now sitting in the safety of her sort of privately <laughs> defended life. Right. With her security that's paid for by taxpayers and saying, contributing to the tension between cops and the black community rather than finding constructive ways to resolve that issue to resolve other issues that contribute to it whether it's poverty whether it's you know the the after effect of redlining these are all real issues you know Mm -hmm. and and i you know we complain a lot about how both sides seem to have just sort of thrown up their hands and said well you know like we're just going to let this carry on what's going on in these neighborhoods um you know it's just um i just i i wish for better you know (laughs)
0: Me too, me as well. Well, tomorrow on Rising, who knows what the day will bring, but whatever it is, we will be here covering it. Bacha, thank you so much for filling in once again. We so appreciate seeing you.
1: Of course.
0: Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. For those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere that podcasts are available. And of course, catch us on the Plex TV app. And we're very excited to announce that as of today, we are on Roku. I am absolutely gonna go home today, figure out how that works and report back tomorrow so that I can advise everyone to go watch us on Roku. Very exciting stuff. We will see you tomorrow. Bye-bye everybody.